and welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends, a weekly podcast from your friends at MI6HQ. James Bond is on assignment this week, so I'm your interim host, Paul Atkinson, and I'm joined today by Joseph Darlington, Bill Koenig, and Edward Biddulph. Can you introduce yourselves, please? I'm Bill Koenig, and I run a blog called The Spy Command. I am Joe Darlington, and I do a humble little podcast and YouTube channel called Being James Bond. And uh, I'm... Edward Bidolf and I, I run a couple of blogs, James Bond memes, looking at ideas about uh, and influences in Bond culture, and also James Bond food, looking at the food, uh, amazingly enough. And uh, yeah, so that's me. Awesome. Thank you, gentlemen. So uh, this week, we're going to talk about the idea of the double feature. So Bill has a bit of a bit of knowledge about um, how time, how in times past, or at least more regularly in times past, Bond films were put together on a back to back on the screen. But we also want to come up with our own double features, and this is a, a pale excuse to talk a little bit about thematic ideas and throughout the franchise, what pairs well together, what films are similar, what films are different, and each of my colleagues and panelists will come up with a couple of ideas, hopefully, about what films they'd like to see paired back to back on the big screen and that might not be because they are their particular favorite films but it might be because they sort of have something interesting in common or show the diversity of range and across the 50 years of the franchise so first i'm going to hand over to bill and then we'll throw some ideas out there and talk a little bit about our dream double features briefly when um goldfinger came out in uh, it came out in september 64 in the uk but it didn't come out until december 64 in the united states and it was you know the first mega hit in the series i mean dr no and from our would love it done very well but goldfinger was a phenomenon and the chaps at united artists didn't didn't need much uh encouragement to uh go back to the well so in 65 and i forget exactly when in 65 they brought out the first two films as a double feature uh dr no and from russia with love basically to keep the money going while uh while thunderball was being filmed which was going to come out at Christmas of 65. And then at that point, the Bond films went on to more or less an every other year schedule. So kind of in the off years, UA would come out with a double feature. So in 66, you had a Goldfinger, Dr. No double feature. In 68, you had a Thunderball from Russia with Love double feature. And 1970, the first one I went to was a You Only Live Twice Thunderball double feature. And... um and you know they actually, and then they brought out Doctor uh, Doctor No and From Russia with Love again in the early seventies. That's the first time I saw them. And then in the summer of seventy two, Goldfinger was going to come on U.S. television that fall. So in the summer, they had a triple feature of Doctor No, From Russia with Love, and Goldfinger. Spend the night with James Bond, as the ad <laughs> said. Um, and then. You know, there were periodic double features after that. I remember going to a uh, Live and Let Die, The Man with the Golden Gun double feature in 75, and which was funny because for that double feature, they came out with a new Man with the Golden Gun poster, at least one I hadn't seen before. It was not the original. Instead, it was actually a, a poster that actually tied into the previous film. So there was like a panel with uh, Joseph Wiseman's Dr. No. There was a panel with... Um, Red Grant and Rosa Club. There was a panel probably with Largo. And then they had a panel with um, uh, the Telly Savalas, uh, Blofeld specifically. And now it's Scaramanga's turn. Uh, and again, this was not the original poster that came out with Golden Guns release, but a, a different poster. And 
the double feature was the first time I saw it. And there have been others since, but um, that was kind of the golden age. And again, back then, um, you know, that was before home video and studios came out with all sorts of double features, often like totally unrelated, except that they had released them. The, the strangest <laughs> double feature I've seen an ad for was for The Odd Couple and Rosemary's Baby, which the only thing those two had in common <laughs> is they were released by Paramount. Um, but the best bond, non-Bond double feature I personally saw was in the early 70s. It was the uh, French Connection and MASH, the movie version of MASH. And um, that was awesome. That was like, those are like two great movies together, you know, one afternoon. So, um, and unfortunately that th those double features are pretty rare nowadays with home video and such. Has anyone else had the opportunity to attend a, either a Bond double feature or a non-Bond double feature? Um, I've, uh, I've, I've only been to one double feature. It was uh, Sister Act 2 and Cool Runnings, you know, about the uh, Jamaican bobsled team. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, was, uh, that, that was that was pretty yeah, pretty good. I thought I can imagine how those two films slot together yes, pretty nicely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that was that was good. Uh, but that's the only double double feature I've uh, I've seen. Of course, I've been to uh, you know when they've had a series of uh, cinemas have shown a series of films uh, tied thematically, but um, but not a double feature as such. I, I can recall when I was younger going to double features pretty regularly, but I feel like now that it, uh, now that I'm older, I feel like it's sort of a lost art. I can remember very specifically when I was younger, always going to Disney double features, and it was always a, a live action Disney film and a cartoon afterwards. And I remember when I was younger, uh, slogging through the live action because I had no interest in it, trying to get to the cartoon. But by the time the cartoon came along, I was usually ready to fall asleep. So I probably slept through the cartoon anyway. So, <laughs> But I, I do kind of miss the idea of a double feature. <laughs> Well, and, and as a footnote, I mentioned this in a previous episode of the podcast. So the first time I saw uh, You Only Live Twice, it was on the bottom half of a double feature with the good, bad, and the ugly. Now, of course, the only thing those two had in common was they were released by United Artists. Um, and I was like nine years old or so, and like I, I just wasn't old enough to appreciate the good and the bad and the ugly. It was like boring me. I, I was having trouble staying awake. But as soon as the Bond movie came on, oh, I was I was totally awake. I saw the films in my 20s, and I also struggled to stay awake. <laughs> I mean, I, I've I've um, I've noticed that um, with my bit of research into these uh, double features that um, these spaghetti westerns have been paired with, with Bond quite a, quite a bit. There's, uh, um, I think, Goldfinger was... Um, uh, I noticed there's a poster for Goldfinger paired with for a few dollars more, and Fist of Dollars has been paired with something I can't quite remember. What, what struck me was that these the Spaghetti Westerns, the, the uh, Dollars trilogy, at least in this country, in, in in the UK, they they had a much higher higher rating than the um, than the Bond films. So uh, whether whether people who weren't who were under underage had to leave after watching the the, the Bond film while the uh, while this uh, for a few dollars more or, or whatever film it was started playing I don't know whether that was uh, whether they thought about that. And I just had one stray memory. So the first double feature I went to, and I think it was the fact my parents said, "Okay, you're you're old enough now to go by yourself." Was the 1971 of You Only Live Twice and Thunderball? I do remember. I grew up in a college town, so I think – I remember hearing these young women. They were probably college students, and they were like referring to Sean Connery. Oh, he had such a hairy chest. Um, <laughs> that was <laughs> – that's a stray memory from my childhood. In Dr. No and from Russia with love. 
Now you can enjoy both bond-busting thrillers on the same theater program. Double the danger. Double the women. Double the excitement. I wanted to dip back briefly into something you said earlier about them making up new posters for the for the double feature spell. And I was just thinking that how rarely it was that Bond films have been marketed with reference to what's gone on in the past. Like, I can't really think of many good examples, with the exception of maybe Quantum of Solace, and that didn't seem very well planned. No, no, it didn't. What they would do with a lot of those double feature posters, they would take elements of uh, – from the original posters of the two movies and kind of like meld them together. So like made Frankenstein um, out of Roger Moore. Yeah. So like, for example, so like the 66 Goldfinger Dr. No, you had, so you had Ursula Andress or a representation of her and um, Honor Blackman, although Honor Blackman was in bikini, which he wasn't in the movie, but um it was like Miss Honey and Miss Galore have James Bond wanting more and uh, something like that. And there were like bits from the two posters. And then several years later, then when they had the triple feature, you had those same two figures at the top of the posters saying, spend the night with James Bond. And uh, and also you had you know, like these figures of Connery and they would like have one one way and then they flip the same image. James Bond is back to back and. Um, and so like also on the, uh, you only live twice Thunderball double feature, you had Connery in the orange wetsuit with, with his flippers holding a drink and holding a spear gun. And then on the other side of the poster, you had Connery in a tux holding the space helmet from you only live twice and holding his gun. And it was, it, it, it kind of helped make the whole thing memorable for me, but uh, you know, if you're going to need one set of implements, then it's probably more important to take your spacesuit than your wetsuit. And it's strange that James Bond's holding the helmet and not in the spacesuit. <laughs> <laughs> but he's well dressed, ready for action underwater. <laughs> yes, yes. The martini might get a bit dry. Oh, and you also had the one woman figure. I think it was Molly Peters was the model for it. So it's like this one woman in a bikini, her back is too, quote, back to the viewer. And so like you have her in between these two Connery figures. Many years later, I uh, I needed a bit of art for a post I was doing, and I didn't realize it had been doctored. And so somebody took that figure and took off the strap of her top. <laughs> So it made it look like she was topless. And it's like, I I had totally missed it. And someone messaged me. I said, Bill, I think that figure isn't the original. Oh, you're right. But I'm not going to change it now. But, uh, <laughs> the eagle-eyed audience, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we know they're where they were looking. Yeah, There's a um, there's a, a poster of a double bill um, with Times Are Forever um, paired with non-Bond Roger Moore film Gold, I think released in 1974, I think. And the Con- Connery and, bon- and uh, Roger Moore are, again, actually they're not back-to-back, but they're side-by-side. And, and they're, they're, uh, even Roger Moore in his non-Bond persona is adopting a, a Bond pose simply because the, the, uh, the body of Sean Connery had been duplicated and Roger Moore's <laughs> um, head stuck on top. <laughs> I think I've seen that, actually, yeah. Are any of the posters you've described so far, Bill, available to see on the internet, or are you re- describing a few of them just from memory? Um, no, they're, they're 
they're out on the internet. Just uh, go to Google Images and uh, <laughs> my friend, you can probably find them. Mr. Google yeah. Images. All right. We might try and assemble a little collection as well um, for the show notes so people can just get the idea. There's a whole cottage industry of cutting and pasting posters. And, and in fact, many years ago, I did a post. It was called uh, Memories of James Bond Double Features or something, and I used a few of those. So I've, I've used them on my own blog. So All right. Plug for Bill's go. blog. There you go. All right. Before we kick off and then we turn to Joe and ask him to give us some suggestions for his double features, or maybe just one and we'll go through it in kind of round robin style. I was trying to sort of like, I was trying to work out like what are the sort of categories that we can classify this into? And the categories will probably come amorphously as we talk through them. But one of the main categories I figured was if you're putting on a double feature, then probably what you want to do is you want to slip a really good film in, a pretty popular film in, you know, you kind of your Goldfingers or your Spy Loves Me, and then tack on one of the ones that you never get the opportunity to air out. So it's like the good and bad kind of double punch. And then I thought there's probably a category that's just weird combinations, things that you wouldn't ever th- think that go together that hopefully work. And there's probably something like thorough crowd pleasers, which is just like, you know, fly and love me, you only live twice kind of combination. Well, I just remembered an- another one was <clears throat> this was a ways into the 70s, maybe 73 or so. Um, for a long time, UA wasn't really sure what it wanted to do with the uh, majesties. It just, it was kind of, you know, it was perceived, at least they perceived it as disappointing, but they finally came out with a double feature of Honor Majesty's Secret Service followed by Diamonds Are Forever. And um, I went to that one and uh, I really liked it because the beginning of Diamonds makes a little more sense if you've seen it like right after seeing Majesties. Um in, in, in other words, it seems, Sean Connery instead of <laughs> yeah. Well, well, it's just that it seems like okay. It, it's it, so at the beginning, you know, the pre-title sequence of Diamonds, it could, mm-hmm. you know that you know his hunt for Blofeld makes a lot more sense if you've just seen Majesties, you know, totally. Most of two years later. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> Especially when the UA publicity department was trying to make you forget majesties ever happened but uh sean connery is back from where well he never left (laughs) (laughs) and i guess just for neatness the last thematic the last um category i wrote down was the sort of like thematic links so if we can draw some connections between films that might have uh, certain things in common Turn over, Joe. Do you have a good suggestion for us of what we're going to screen in our magical mystery? I cinema? do. I have a few actually, and uh, I'll tell you, this was this was a sort of a fun exercise because I think, you know, for many years I've always sort of had this sort of fantasy about, you know, if I had my own movie house and I was going to put together sort of a Bond film festival where I was trying to appeal to, uh, you know, people who might not be very familiar with James Bond and sort of give like a very rudimentary introduction, a little time capsule of Bond over the years. How would I do it? And, you know, when you were talking about how you what general theme you would sort of give your double feature or, you know, I've always sort of said to myself, I think what I would do is try to find films with similar you know we talk when we talk about theme a lot we sort of at least i do i know i have this range when i'm discussing films like is is this something that is kind of the down and dirty realistic film that uh you know I, on one extreme you would have uh, maybe the jason Bourne style films that that try to almost feel pseudo documentary ish as opposed to the more 
fantastic. Uh, the, the more fa- you know, fantasy level films. Obviously, with James Bond, you sort of run the gambit. You have you have uh, the more fantastical films. You only live twice. Uh, Moonraker, Die Another Day, uh, and then you have sort of the much more grounded uh, from Russia with Love, etc. And of course, everything in between. Uh, so I was trying to think of films that I thought more or less kind of kept a, a similar tone, you know, where that sort of happy medium is. So I, w- I won't go down my whole film festival list, but I will say that uh, there was there's two particular, I think, double features that would sort of work. Uh, one would be Dr. No and Thunderball, which I feel is, again, similar enough in tone and also sort of dances in that that Spectre storyline. You have sort of the introduction to Spectre uh, in Dr. No, and then Thunderball gives you a full-blown look at the organization that we had touched on, you know, getting into the big, uh, the big scheme of what this organization can do. But the one that I like best, the double feature that I think I would do if I had to pick just two, what I would pick would be Honor Majesty's Secret Service paired with For Your Eyes Only. And what I like about mm. that is a, there's, a, of course, an obvious connection where Honor Majesty, of course, ends with Blofeld, the murder of Tracy and Blofeld escapes. Then you pick up with your eyes only with Bond at Tracy's grave. And then, of course, you get Blofeld again. And, and we're kind of skipping over the Diamonds of Forever Blofeld. And we're sort of seeing Blofeld in the neck brace. So I sort of feel like this is kind of like, oh, yeah, that's how it ended off. He was stuck in the tree. He had the neck brace, et cetera. Uh, so and again, I think the tones of the films work pretty f- fairly evenly killed. Um, you know, they never get too outrageous, et cetera. And again, I also just sort of find that it's as far as like a time capsule would go, you're sort of showing people 60s James Bond paired with early 80s James Bond and 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 a loose connection that these these films could sort of exist in the same world. Actually, that's brilliant, I, I would say, um, because I, actually, I think it's a little bit more than a little bit of a connection just because um, here's the thing. So when they did for your eyes only they in the script there was a line that got trimmed where uh blow where, where the sort of blofeld says this is the 10th anniversary of our last encounter uh which is a reference to diamonds and uh mm-hmm. so they took that out of the movie but it's in the marvel comics oh. adaptation of for your eyes only and so so yeah so they the original intent was actually to make it much more of a direct connection than it was and and of course on the on the tombstone it you know gives tracy's date of death as 1969 which mm-hmm. is the year majesties came out so i i think that's a really good idea uh, yes I, I like it and of course both have um, have some good skiing action as well so so there you go so yes. there's, uh, there's a so, there you go another it's connection the, it's, the, it's a skiing double yeah yeah. Not to be the negative naysayer, I was just interested in thinking about the fact that you said, oh, like, Majesties might be indicative of 60s Bond. Not entirely certain that it's indicative of 60s Bond. It's sort of a bit of an outlier when you think about it's surrounded by Diamonds Are Forever and you only live twice. It's a bit of a... True. 
a bit of a different tone and a bit of a different sort of pace and, and that sort of things. But you'll certainly get to see things, you know, like I think there's, a, there's strong thematic links and a great, it's a great choice from that perspective. But like if I was trying to say, well, here's what, what Bond was like in the 60s versus the 80s, I would probably pick a, well, and, and a different he- film. And here's something else to consider. I would say Majesties is the most faithful adaptation of a Fleming story in the Eon series. And I would then say that For Your Eyes Only is the most faithful uh, interpretation Fleming adaptation of, of the in the of the Roger Moore movies. Um, so they're both very grounded in Fleming. Again, it's not exact because, like in uh, in uh, Majesties, the novel. Bond and Tracy get married at essentially the equivalent of the Justice of the Peace, whereupon in the movie it's this grand wedding with all these flowers and so forth. But, you know, yes, it's I think it's I, I, I think there's no doubt that Majesties is the closest to Fleming of the whole Leon series. And Four Eyes Only is is, you know, takes I mean, it's two short stories, not just one, but it's um yeah, I, I, I think it's got mm. high Fleming content. Yeah, you're right. You I was about to quibble with that. And then I thought back to like Even Live and Let Die and Man with the Golden Gun are both not especially <laughs> faithful. And I was like, those probably would Live and Let Die be the be the second place in that story? Because Octopussy certainly isn't. No. Um, yeah, somewhat. I mean, I mean, I mean, among the Roger Moore films. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 You could make that case. <laughs> Thank you. That's a great suggestion, Joe. I like it. Bill, would you like to offer us um, something something to chew on? I do. And as as anyone who listened to our previous uh, installment about the uh, music and soundtrack, know I can like sometimes make connections that you don't think about. So actually, this on the surface is pretty logical. It uh, would be a double feature of the first two Daniel Craig films, uh, Casino Royale and. Quantum of Solace. And, but I have a personal reason beyond just the, the, the obvious. So a good friend of mine was named Paul Bach, and he was the co-founder of the uh, former Her Majesty's Secret Servant website. And the Spy Command was originally an offshoot of that website. And then Paul, unfortunately, was uh, the victim of, a, of an accident where he, a hit and run accident where he became paralyzed. And, but he carried on doing this fantastic art, but he switched from like drawing it himself to using voice activated software so he did a poster for a <laughs> uh, casino royale quantum of solace double feature and it very much evoked those original double double feature posters so his make-believe poster if you will was james bond is back on the big screen and so i've got a copy of this in front of me so it says his enemies have another chance to get him and you've got a picture of lashif and Dominic Green, his women have another chance to have him. And it's, you know, the two female leads. Now you have another chance to see him. And he takes the actual credits from, you know, the two movies. And, you know, he actually had the MGM and Columbia logos and all that. So, you know, if they ever had a double feature with Paul's poster, I I would be the first one lined up to go see it just just for that experience. It would really be like the in those sixties and seventies double features to to have something like that. Awesome. I mean, yeah, no, I remember Paul from the years past and I did not know that he was a victim of a hit and run accident. So he didn't talk about it a lot. The, um, those of us who knew him knew it, but he did not advertise Absolutely. it. So um I 
I, I never talked about it publicly until he died. But um, um, anyway, but but he and he was also just as an aside, he was like really great coming up with make believe James Bond movie posters because he he did one for an Alfred Hitchcock directed James Bond movie that based on the Hildebrand rarity. And then he did another one. It was for an article I wrote for HMSS about how uh, Howard Hawks was interested in doing Casino Royale. So he did a poster for it, and it was like it was great. He had he he quote cast the movie. He had Cary Grant as Bond. But uh, anyway, but but that double feature I described with a Paul Bach poster. It's like absolutely and that it. ties into your <laughs> early fascination with the with the specialized posters for the double features. So that's really cool. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It it, cap- it captured the mood of that era very It'd well. It'd be quite fun to see some of these done sort of retroactively. So, you know, the, the Craig kind of era represented in the style of some of the art from the Sean Connery era and that sort of stuff. It's like pulling it out of time. So that's a fan art project for anyone who's listening that wants to do something interesting <laughs> to please me specifically. I've seen a few things like that. I've seen some <laughs> some really great work uh, doing the Daniel Craig uh, posters, you know, just like the old old style. And it's really good stuff. I love it. Awesome. I'll be doing some Googling this afternoon then. And obviously, also, Bill, you've paired one of the longest films with one of the shortest films, so you're thinking very carefully about your audience. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, it, it seems like an obvious match in terms of it being a, at least on paper a direct continuation and sort of the the story ebbing and flowing between the two of them. Have any of you ever actually watched the films back to back until they make more sense as a result? Uh, I I can't think I have actually. I know I've seen a few, like I, I've done like an afternoon where I'm doing a couple bonds in in a in a row but uh not necessarily for the sake of doing them in a row to sort of pair them together but uh, that is an interesting experiment I'm tried I, I it has been my mind to uh to uh, to watch Casino and uh, Quantum back to back but um but I haven't but I I suppose part of me thinks well I know I know there are you know um strictly speaking the the, the end of Casino and 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 uh beginning Quantum Solace don't quite match up perfectly and in a way i i, I, don't, I don't i don't i don't want to want to draw attention to that by by watching it and i'm, I'm quite happy to to leave a gap and and uh in, in between my viewings <laughs> fair enough joe all right yeah it might not be enhanced by <laughs> by watching them back to back i vaguely remember in the deep recesses of my mind where i was like finished casino royale and it's probably like 10 30 at night and i was like oh yeah i could probably put on quantum of solace and see what happens and i don't didn't make it <laughs> And in terms of the context, when Paul did that that make believe poster, it uh, there were only two Craig films at that time. It was in two thousand nine, so um, yeah, that that's all you had. But uh, it, anyway, it was great. It was great fan art. Awesome, poster. awesome. Move on to Edward. Have you got a suggestion for us? Um, yes, I. Do have a suggestion. Um, uh, say the at the beginning. There are I've noticed I've been I've been um, been making a grid of the pairings, and um, and there are there are there are there is there has emerged some sort of rule about what's paired, and and it um, uh, by and large a film is is paired with up to uh, two two previous films. Um, so um, you don't get. Um, uh, I mean, there are the one or two exceptions. Um, I think. Times are forever. It has been paired with from Russia Love, but generally speaking, a film is paired with 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 a 
with with one that one that was perhaps released only a, a few years previously. So so there isn't that uh, great big gap. So nobody so there hasn't really been the pairing of of say a Roger Mill film and an early Sean Connery film to 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 a great extent. But I'm going to I'm um, having said all that I'm going to break that that rule. And uh, actually, I'm not going to have a huge gap between my films. But what I'm going to pair is License to Kill, and uh, I'm, I'm going to go back to uh, um, Casino Royale. Casino Royale is 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 an example of a film that's that is uh, a loose adaptation of Fleming. It it has a lot of Fleming in it, but but the story is clearly updated, and the locations have been changed. And and to my mind, that's the same with License to Kill, which um, although it, of course uh, it, uh, it it features aspect of Live and Let Die and uh, the Hildebrand rarity. W- when you look at the plot, the plot is very much like the plot of The Man with the Golden Gun, the the, the novel. Both the novel and License to Kill are um, uh, both set in the uh, in the steamy tropics. Uh, in both, James Bond ingratiates himself with a with a not a very nice uh, villain. Well, not, not the villains are very nice, but uh, but uh, basically a thug. He, uh, Bond ingratiates himself in his company so that uh, Bond can essentially kill him. The um, the in both the thug hires Bond to to provide security um, during a uh, drug deal, and uh, and then Bond's in both Bond's identity is is um, is exposed by someone close to the to the villain who recognizes Bond as an enemy, and. And the uh, and at the end, both the uh, the villain and the um, and Bond are uh, fighted out in some uh, marginal wasteland. And in both, actually, the, uh, well, if you go by the uh, by the um, King's Lamus view, that both License to Kill and Man Gone and Gun, the, the, the book have a uh, have a gay subtext, or it could be said to have a gay subtext. So, like uh, Casino Royale, License to Kill, if it claimed to to have taken the Man Gone and Gun as its um, source material, I don't think anyone would have any problems with that. And um, and well, I hope not. And uh, so, very much like Casino Royale, um, I think um, there's there's it's um, it's uh, it's uh, um, it's a loose adaptation of a of of a, of a Fleming story. Modern retelling of modern the, retelling, uh, yes. Amazing. I had never put all of that together in my brain before. So thank you for that. About <laughs> the man with the golden gun and, and license to kill. Um, I, you know, can I say I actually I'm sort of embarrassed actually that I never noticed that before. I I never put it together. And I read the man with the golden gun, and the only thing I sort of walked away with is that I think it's one of the few times where I think the film adaptation is better because it feels more Bond like than the novel. But now that you sort of pointed that out, the, the parallels between License to Kill, again, like I said, I'm a little embarrassed. I never noticed that before. That is a very, uh, very interesting parallel. Oh, and, and, oh, yes, and thank you. And there's, there's, there's one more. Um, in um, License to Kill, Bond um, tells Garamanga, uh, Garamanga <laughs> Bond tells uh, Sanchez that he's a, sorry, that's a fraud and slip, that he's a problem eliminator. In the in the novel of, of The Man with the Golden Gun, although Bond doesn't use that phrase, problem eliminator, he says he, he, um, He's there to sort out any problems, so he is a problem eliminator in the book as well. And so, yeah, there's there, there you go. There's a, there's a there's a, there's another nice uh, nice little uh, parallel there. Yeah, I mean they're also quite different style films as well. I think License to Kill was it doesn't have the same kind of slick, smooth kind of like pacing and style as say Casino Royale or in, in any of the Craig Craig era. It takes its time over certain things and sort of feels like more like a gritty 80s action film than anything else in the Bond franchise. So it's quite nice to sort of contrast them as well in that respect, but also say, well, you know, you can see the roots of Fleming in this novel that I hadn't seen for, what, 15 years? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I, I, I had, um, uh, for, for, for a long time, I, I, um, 
I wasn't that keen on Licence to Kill, and and I thought the same. I thought, well, this is uh, this is uh, this is basically Die Hard, or or you know, it was trying to it was clearly trying to get that uh, at that uh, that market reach that market, and and this and then when it struck me that there was some parallels between uh, between the film and uh, and Fleming material, that uh, flicked a switch in my mind, and uh, I thought, and I saw it in a new light, and uh, and it started to. Uh, and and ever since then, I've uh, I've, uh, I've 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 grown to grown to love it um, as a film. What are your feelings as a panel on *License to Kill*? I feel like it, I haven't really gotten a good read on how people feel about it and respect it. Obviously, spending enough time around James, and he's he's a fan, <laughs> but he's not here to defend it today. So I I can tell you if myself. I I like like you said. I've sort of always kind of dismissed it as being kind of a low budget uh, lethal weapon movie. Uh, again, you know, James Bond, it's in the eighties, it's set in the tropics. So the, you know, I, I've always agreed with people who drew parallels between that and Miami Vice, Lethal Weapon. Uh, and, and I saw the attempt to kind of be like a Yo Jimbo sort of a story where, you know, he's, he's playing both sides against each other. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I, I admire the attempt at going for the deeper themes. Uh, you know, the bad guy rewards loyalty and, and that's how you really get to him, not the financial. But yeah, I, again, I was probably more of a, I'm a big Living Daylights fan. So I think uh, License to Kill always left me just a little flat. I'll uh, echo something I said on a previous installment. Um, one, I got the impression the first time I saw it, I, I, when I was leaving the theater, I thought, you know what? This movie probably needed like one more draft of the script. It, like there was just an element that wasn't quite polished. Um, and second, probably because the there were so many Americans in the cast, uh, yeah, um, it seemed like a James Bond movie from Quinn Martin Productions. Of course, by the time the movie came out, Quinn Martin had died. But, um, you know, because it has guys like, Anthony Zerby and Don Stroud and you know it just in that it I mean part of it's the cast you know there's so many Americans in it that just it's got um, kind of lower stakes compared to other Bond films but you know I mean it's not you know it's not a horrible film it's not a bad James Bond film but it's definitely different and and I also mentioned in the previous podcast that my wife hates it and she still hates it. So she's not going to change her mind. So anyway, I, you know, I'll say this, if, if there was one, if I literally could only make one change that I think would have made the most difference, I would have recast Felix Leiter, not using David Hedison, but using, and his name is going to escape me, but the guy who played him in living daylights, because I think, Thank you, John Terry. Because I, I, I think one of the biggest leaps of faith that you have is that James Bond would go on this revenge tear for such a casual acquaintance. But I think if you put John Terry back in, I think the implication would have been that these men had grown to, to be much more of a have much more of a deeper friendship off camera uh, than just kind of putting uh, David Hedison back in. Uh, just, just, just kind of saying, here's remember Felix Leiter from the other film. Uh, so let's, you know, I, I guess the idea was to sort of imply a deeper friendship because we're looking at a familiar Leiter. But again, I, I think had they, had they tried to keep it in this universe that they had already worked on. And again, 
I, I think we would have gotten an idea that, okay, maybe these guys are better friends than we've been led to believe so far. Maybe that's why Bond is getting uh, so angry. Because, again, it, this was a this was an emotional level, uh, an emotional response from James Bond that I don't think we've ever seen before. Right. And, and also, um, um, John Terry is more or less the same generation as Timothy Dalton, if anything, a, a tad younger, where, whereupon David Hedison is clearly older. And, you know, because there had been 16 years between Live and Let Die and License to Kill. And, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I, David Hedison's presence is kind of odd. Um, I like David Hedison a lot, but uh, it's, it's just a little bit odd in that movie. I don't know that John Terry had enough to do in The Living Daylights in order to get audience buy-in in the way that you would like to think that they would, though, Joe. I think that I think that's the actual thought process that went in that they wanted a Felix Leiter that maybe the audience knew a bit better because Paul, you're right, you know, because John Terry was in about I don't know what he have half dozen lines, something like that. Is this a put up job? Um, Literally in one scene, one or two, maybe like maybe like two where one you can't see his face. <laughs> <laughs> and then another where he actually meets Bond. Um, no, three. Because yes, yes, then yes. when Bond is infiltrating. Uh, oh, yes. Oh, he uses the CCTV. <laughs> yeah, okay. And then he like helps guide Bond in and says, okay, okay, James, you're on your own now. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that he was, again, kind of a, la- a very lackluster presence in the living daylights. But. Again, like I said, I'm, you're you're trying to sort of imply something off screen uh, by bringing him back. I, I think bringing David Hedison back again. This is 1989, and you're kind of falling back to 1973 to draw a connection. Now, I was at the time the uh, License to Kill came out. I was 19 years old, and and I'm a fledgling Bond fan at this point. And I have no idea who this guy is. I just see a different actor. He's much, like you said, he's much older than than Timothy Dalton. He's got a girl who looks much younger than him, and it, and the it's very the contrast is almost it's a little creepy, frankly, almost <laughs> that that age disparity there. So again, I I I feel like the attempt to to draw a connection, two things. You're hoping that your fan is old enough to know who David Hedison is. Uh, and you're also, even if they do know who he is, you're making a cinematic connection, you know, looking back at the history of the James Bond films and not necessarily the story that you're in. So I, again, I almost feel like it's kind of fourth wall breaking a little bit to even pull him in, which again, sort of, it contradicts what you're going for here. You're trying to go for a personal connection. Now I'm thinking, oh yeah, well, film historian me recognizes who this is, but uh, the person in this who's involved in this particular story, yeah, not as much. When when I first saw the cast list, I actually thought Don Stroud might be lighter. It's like, oh, he's got blonde hair. Oh, they're finally going for the Fleming description. Uh, but no, no, that wasn't so. And and the other odd thing about uh, License to Kill, strictly as a tangent, is like I get the impression that uh, Felix's wife once had a fling with Bond. Maybe yes, I, I get like kind of. Me too. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just me little, that's it's, young, young and innocent. All right, <laughs> <laughs> it's just a little weird. Just I, which has nothing to do with what we're talking about. I but. wholeheartedly 
get that vibe when I watch it. I still to this day watch that and I almost get a, a funny impression like Felix Leiter is the consolation prize. You know, that this woman is yeah. really interested in James Bond, but has accepted the fact that that won't happen and has decided to go for Felix. Yeah, I, I completely have always sort of gotten that weird vibe. The rule of 80s Bond is that everyone has to be interested in Bond, though. That's true. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear it's not just me, though. So, I mean, so thanks for saying um, With um, uh, David Hudson in role, uh, Felix uh, Lawson's kill. At, le- at least uh, there's one one thing about his role that that uh, that uh, is different from his uh, his portrayal in um, uh, *Live and Let Die*, and that's he uh, he isn't using a phone. If you if you look at uh, um, *Live and Let uh, Die*, he's always on the phone um, in, well, in most of his scenes, and uh, <laughs> he, he isn't. He, he's, he, he's he's actually got to do something else. In <laughs> he's running around. Right, like when he when yes. he's talking to Mr. Bleeker of the Flying School. <laughs> how, how, how is Mrs. Bell? Intensive care, but she'll yes. pull through. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, uh, that's that's uh, that's Dave Hedden, uh, the, uh, That's his Felix the whole the whole way through that film. <laughs> that's right. He's constantly cleaning yes. up Bond's messes <laughs> in that movie. So, Joe, as it's we're coming right round to your turn again, uh, I was going to need some help. What would you pair? Um, the living daylights with what would you put on the other, on the back end of the living daylights to make a double feature because um living daylights is one of my personal favorites despite the fact that the the cast mostly can't act i just like some of the action set pieces <laughs> and the espionage and uh, <laughs> as, as i can say the sort of revenge mission of timothy dalton's film you know um well yeah. well joe don baker can act he just overacts you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sorry. He, he Joe Don, he got the memo to 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 uh, be larger than life, and he took it a little too close to heart. Uh, That's right. He's he, he's decided I have to act more because no one else is acting. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, the Living Daylights, boy, that's a tricky one because it, it's funny. I I'm a big fan of that film. I I do agree that the uh, the villains are a little lackluster, but. Uh, I've always loved it for its tone, its score, its location. I mean, the the opening shot, the, the opening scene that is lifted from the short story, I absolutely adore. Uh, and I think Dalton is terrific. And I, I think they, you know, soften him up just right for, to be James Bond, whereas they try to make him hard as nails in the second one. And I think it's, eh, it's a little much. But, um, yeah, what would I pair that with? I, I, I think I would have to go, honestly. Like, well, there's two directions I would go. Uh, one possibility would be Goldeneye. Uh, the, the theme of Russia and the Cold War is still a theme in Goldeneye. So I think that might work. Uh, mm-hmm. there's a, you could sort of make a loose connection because there's, I, I've heard the fan theory. I don't know if I agree with it, that the opening of Goldeneye when he's being, he's with the analyst who is going to clear him for duty or not. Uh, I heard it said that that was a response to what uh, to him defecting in Lysis the Kill. Don't know if I would agree with that, but okay. Uh, so yeah, that's one way to go. Uh, the other way to go might be to go backwards and go to from Russia with Love, uh, another one that has the Cold War theme, uh, reasonably similar in tone, and and Bond I, himself. Uh, would probably be the more harder-edged Bond that could uh, line up a little more with Timothy Dalton's Bond. Um, so one of those two, I would say. 
That's interesting because I was also struggling to think of what to put with From Russia with Love because I definitely wanted to include From Russia with Love in one of my double bills, but I couldn't find couldn't find the pairing. So maybe you just helped me out. <laughs> well, I've got an idea when it gets to my, be my turn. So. Thank you for helping me out with my emergency my emergency double bill, Joe. But um, <laughs> did you have another one that you were interested in pitching to the group? Uh, honestly, that was I think the other one I mentioned earlier. I'll mention again was uh, Doctor No and Thunderball. I felt like those two. Again, I like the idea that it's kind of a the introduction to Spectre in one, and then kind of the the grand plan of Spectre in uh, Thunderball. So I think those two would bookend nicely, and I think they're again. Uh, still sort of in the in the grounded Connery years before we start to get uh, a little larger than life. We haven't been to space yet, et cetera. Uh, after that, honestly, beyond the ones I kind of mentioned, although I will say I, I did also mention that uh, some of the bonds that get a little larger than life, if you wanted to sort of do uh, maybe a triple bill and uh, <laughs> highlight some moments where, where Bond has certainly gone above and beyond, uh, a good triple bill might be. You only live twice, Moonraker, and die another day, and uh, kind of kind of hi- highlight the more uh, fantastic elements of James Bond. Yeah, yeah. The twenty uh, first century version of Spend the Night with James Bond. There you go. <laughs> That's about all I got. I mean, I got I find I find that once you hit Goldeneye, you you're sort of getting into sort of an unspoken reboot era. So I, I, I'm struggling to kind of go beyond Goldeneye into into how I would structure uh, my double features. That's that's fair enough, actually. I guess you're kind of like you're meddling with something that's so they deliberately drawn a line under it. Yeah, hmm. you know, I, you know, it's funny. I mean, have I I've always sort of, uh, you know, when Casino Royale came out, there was the big all the hubbub about how this is a reboot and this has never been done, and I I sort of I kind of dismiss that frankly because I feel like well, it's the first time they acknowledge that they're rebooting. <laughs> uh, and decided to full blown go with that, uh, but again, I I find that uh, once you once Pierce Brosnan comes in, I felt like that was very much a reboot. It was just sort of unspoken, because uh, once Brosnan comes in, you never really hear any references to uh, him being married before. Uh, when they do talk about past loves, it's a new character altogether. Uh, so yeah, I I kind of feel like right there you're kind of looking at a little bit of a reboot, but uh, again, not. Just not acknowledged, really. Quick quick piece of background. In the 1995 fan convention in New York City, Michael G. Wilson spoke before fans, and he made a comment to the effect that, um, I forget the exact words, but it was something like, well, I don't view it as a series, but a series of series. And so like that was the first time I ever heard anyone associated with Eon try to say that they were like, not all the same series and so like so for example in the brosnan films you never have felix Leiter, for example mm. um and yeah yeah so so like i said up until then that was that was the first time i i ever heard anyone at eon kind of open the door to that um anyway just that that's just a piece that's of why it doesn't uh, go to fan conventions anymore <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I like. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna take that as sort of a, an acknowledgement of what I'm saying, and you know, possibly confirmation. 
There are little discrete yeah. errors, yeah. not just because of the people that are involved in the films and one one group of people mm. signing off and another group of people take, taking over the torch, but potentially thematically and storyline-wise right. and, as well. And also with the Brosnan films, there's no acknowledgement of Tracy, mm. whereupon you know, the Roger Moore films definitely took acknowledged Tracy in a major way, um, you know, at least twice, mm. once in The Spy Who Loved Me and then again in For Your Eyes Only with that tombstone. And then, um, you know, Timothy Dalton acknowledged Tracy and uh, License to Kill. Yeah. But after, but after that, uh, we don't want to mention that anymore. Um, because Haphazard Stuff, who Joe recently interviewed, did this video where it was like this, um, oh, it was this interview with Michael Wilson and Barbara Broccoli on the red carpet at one of the premieres. And she says, oh, yes, Vesper will always be his true love. And then you hear this sound effect of a record player going and <laughs> with, with a video of diana Rigas tracy what Why? Huh? Yeah, it really you know again it, it, i i i think what you're saying about uh how the or what michael wilson said about the series of series i think is very accurate because i you know again i when you talk to a a, a lay person you know, and, and they're trying to draw parallels and saying, is is this a sequel to that? Or did this happen here? And, you, and you're just like, you know what? At the end of the day, they, they're sort of all their own animal, uh, very loosely connected. And again, I, I mean, it's like when when Casino happened and we all asked ourselves, like, so does that mean that we will eventually meet Tracy? Does that mean we will eventually? Yeah, not really. You know, the, some things yeah. may, or, may or may not be lifted from Fleming, other things not. And uh, that's it. It's just it's it's its own incarnation. And there's there's no rules to it, really. Yeah. I, I, yes, I, I've, I've always considered the, um, well, up to a certain point, the, uh, you're right up to the Daniel Craig era that, that's, you know, these are um, standalone films that may or may not have any, have, have connections. I mean, I suppose the, it's the, um, in uh, For Your Eyes Only, uh, Tracy's Graves there, because uh, as I'm sure we all know, the, there might have been a different Bond um, uh, actor. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I, I yeah, yes, I, I don't, I don't, I don't worry to worry too much about, uh, about uh, quite where they, where the where the film sort of sits on the on the timeline or the uh, sequence or, or, or essentially what's gone on before. I think, as we said on this podcast a few times before, yeah. Bond fans have to be you know a little bit like flexible with with uh, flexible. with chronology. If you're interested <laughs> in you know chronology and continuity, then you've come to the wrong series. <laughs> and for your eyes only was one of the few times where they like really embraced that, uh, at least up to that time. But then by embracing it, then there's some implications so bond's probably like in his early 50s now um it's probably best not to think about it but um it's looking good for it but yeah i mean yeah oh very good and and some people have referred to the living daylights as a quote soft reboot in that okay you have the same m and you have the same q but you've changed your money penny and <laughs> okay so it's kind of a it's kind of a mishmash i kind of viewed it's to be honest, it's kind of like comic book uh, aging where characters get older, but they don't get older in actual real lifetime. They just kind of... Their experiences count, but yeah. their, uh, their actual aging process doesn't It's like right. relative aging. So they might be 10 years older, even though like 50 years in real time has passed, some, you know, something like that. 
Yeah, I was just going to jump on the bandwagon of Joe's last comment about um, about the Space Trilogy or whatever it was. My very first double bill that I came up with just after I came up with this idea was Diamonds Are Forever and Die Another Day. Okay. <laughs> both, both I guess, space laser infused, both have the sort of like, like a bit of a campy over-the-top mm. nature to yeah. them. I always... In my mind, at least, I always think I'm going to enjoy them slightly more than I do. I put both of them in the DVD player optimistic and come out a bit deflated. Um, but nobody wants to come to that double bill, right? <laughs> and they have these in the title. So they, you know, so there's kind of a rhythmic uh, connection. Mm. <laughs> I guess that's where the, that's where the connection is. <laughs> well, there, there is a line in Die Another Day. I guess diamonds are for everyone. Uh, yeah. not, a very good, mean, not a very good connection, but... Uh... But it's there. <laughs> <laughs> That's trying to trying to wedge in as many like homages to the yeah. on the fortieth anniversary film. Imagine imagine if we got Sam Mendes back to direct the sixtieth anniversary no. film. How no. much trouble would we be no. in? No. <laughs> <laughs> I would slash my wrist, you know, forget about Daniel Craig. <laughs> Awesome, awesome. Bill, did you have one more offering for us? One more. This is more of a tonal double feature um, from Russia with Love and um, For Your Eyes Only, in that each one is probably the most Fleming faithful for Connery and Moore. And, um, you know, again, very similar tone. I, I, you know, I, I, you know, it's not necessarily a real obvious connection, but I think, uh, yeah, I, 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 I think they sort of play similarly. I I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think one of the very interesting connections between the two is uh, the sort of father figure uh, companion or um, contact uh, in the form of uh, yes. Karen Bay in one and uh, uh, Topol's character in the other one, who just name popped out of my head for a second. Uh, and I honestly, I think in, in Columbo, Columbo, thank you. Uh, it's interesting too because I I've always sort of felt that in From Russia with Love, I think he's kind of the go-to that people always refer to as being like, oh, this is his his best contact and his, uh, you know, he's he's such a great character, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. But I love the layer that they add in For Your Eyes Only by having him be a character that you're not even sure that you like yet. Or, you know, we think he's the bad guy at first and we have to sort of come to, uh, to acknowledge or come to, you know, we find later that he's not the bad guy at all. And he, he's, he's bonds, uh, compatriot in this. And I, I, yeah, I think that's a really great double bill. Yes. I'd, uh, I'd, uh, I think I'd, I'd, I'd be, uh, I'd, I'd be happy to, uh, happy to uh, pay my, uh, my money to watch, uh, mm-hmm. to watch that. Yeah. I'm just thinking one of the things we haven't spoken at all about really on the podcast in the 20-some episodes we've been running is sort of like the quality of the allies and how much how endearing some of them are versus how sort of flat some of them are. You know, you think back to your quarrels and Dracos and your, as you said, Karen Bays, and I feel like we haven't had that kind of like standout iconic ally in a really long time. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, one of the big disappointments with Die Another Day is that they had a great opportunity to have another one of those. Uh, that the Karen Bay, Columbo, Draco, that that familiar character, uh, they bring him back and die another day in the form of Raul, who I thought for sure could have easily been a character that could have hmm. stayed with us throughout the whole film or, you know, could have shown up later with the cavalry at, uh, at, at Bond's right. darkest moment. And uh, for some reason, not at all. They just uh, we, we meet him. We have a couple sit downs with cigars and then he, he just goes away. 
kind of disappointing missed opportunity there. Yeah, as soon as uh, Bond is on the plane to London, we don't, we we never hear from him again. Yeah, I mean the other potential the potential option there was Mathis, but Mathis is Mathis. kind of like un- yeah. under a cloud, I guess, there for a long time, and then when Bond comes to trust him, he dies. <laughs> <laughs> don't get me started on that one. That I think that's one of the things. <laughs> I, I, I think I, there's moments where I'm ready to to give Quantum a break and kind of let it redeem itself a little bit. And maybe, oh, maybe it's not so bad. Then I see Mathis get dumped in the dumpster. I'm like, that's it. Done. Goodbye. I'm out. <laughs> are we, um, Edward, are you still keep doing the numbers? I mean, like, I feel like we've mentioned a lot of the same films yes, in our crossovers yes. and combinations, yes. well, right? I mean, but- like, Yes, well, these are the, those are the classic. Uh, I think some of the classic ones, classic uh, pairings. Yes, from Rush Love is is mentioned. And I, I totted some. I mean, this is basically on on research I could find on the on the internet. But I, but I um I totted up the um the the, the number of films that have been uh, paired. And um, uh, Doctor No, in fact, is comes up to, uh, comes top. It uh, it seems to be the the film that's been paired the most with other films. Thunderball um, is also quite Makes high sense. there. Um, but then it sort of tails off. I mean, Moonrakers is pretty up there, um, and um, but but surprisingly, Goldfinger hasn't doesn't seem to have been paired that often with 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 other films. You thought thought uh, it might have done, but uh, perhaps it's just too it, it's uh, it's 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 sort of big enough on its own, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so um, and yeah yeah Moonraker and um, it seems to be that as I said is that uh, I mean even it, it even beats the uh, Spy of Me as far as I can tell from uh, from the uh, uh, film posters that I've uh, tracked down. Yeah, well, um, Doctor No makes perfect sense given that it's been around the longest, and it's probably always the Doctor No Thunderball, Doctor No from Rush with Love double build seems to probably have been prevalent from the get go. Whereas, interesting that Moonraker sort of has part of the renaissance of double builds in that era. I'll tell you what, if I was going to try to wedge uh, Goldfinger in with something else for for a double bill, I think maybe I would pair it with The Spy Who Loved Me, and I think that the theme could be Third Times a Charm. Because I think I think it's a great example of where their third films is when they really come into their own and yes, indeed the uh, that the uh, the third film uh, um, that sort of third film uh, element I think is um, is a pretty good uh, rule there. Golden Eye would have been um, Timothy Dawson's third film, um, so so yes, you can have another <laughs> one, Cripple Bill. Um, but I would um, I would uh, talking about Goldfinger. Actually, I do have a pairing for Goldfinger. Um, uh, the uh, I suppose an obvious one, uh, a, a pair it with A View to a Kill mm. as the. Uh, as a, a view to kill being a remake of, of Goldfinger. Mm. That's an interesting one. In well, change the gold for a computer chip. There's a uh, both villains have a have a have a stud farm, <laughs> and uh, and there's a Rolls Royce in there. So so there you go. There's uh, there's three uh, three fellows. <laughs> I believed your I believed your <laughs> man with the golden gun license to kill remake theory a little bit more, but that's still convincing. <laughs> I like that because I never I never considered the stud farm as well. I, I've I've heard people say that uh, a view to a kill is essentially the Goldfinger plot. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, I see it. Yes. But uh, the, yeah, the stud <laughs> yes. farm is an but, extra um, one. That's good. Don't trust a man who likes horses too much. Yes. Um, but I I also wondered whether um, I, I I was interested in these other pairings that we've had that in the in uh, that we've spoken about where a Bond film has been paired with a non-Bond film and um, I noticed that um, I, I've seen that um, the, the Spy Who Loved Me has been um, uh, in the past has been uh, paired with uh, the Pink Panther Strikes Again and uh, there have been um, uh, which is it seems like a very natural pairing and of course we have we've had our uh, more recent uh, uh, takes on the Pink Panther and. Um, with uh, with Steve Martin and and so why not pair one of those films with uh, with with a more recent Bond? 
um, perhaps perhaps a, perhaps a, a Pierce Brosnan um, effort. Um, a side note about the, that Pink Panther double feature. It was specifically the Pink Panther Strikes Again, yes, I right. think. Now, I remember I was visiting my uh, grandparents in the summer of 75, and my grandmother liked to get supermarket tabloids. So they were laying around. So I looked at one, and it claimed that they were going to have James Bond in it, but they were going to have Mike Connors play James Bond. And, um, and I thought, this seems rather fanciful. And of course, nothing came of it. But a, uh, a friend of mine claims that um, for that movie, they filmed Sellers doing a gun barrel, um, but they didn't use it for that movie either. So there might have been some there might have been some thinking about tying it into Bond, but it never happened. Although there's like this one big map uh, of the world in that movie where. It looks very similar to the Spectre map of the world in You Only Live Twice. Like, maybe they still had it in the prop room and they just used it. I don't know. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I've, it's I've, I've, um, I've, I've heard uh, the rumor that, that, that Sellers did, did a, a gun barrel. Um, it, I mean, whether to ever emerge on a, on a DVD extra, I don't know. All right. Are we are we just about worn out of double bills? Um, well, the, the, oh, sorry, just uh, another one that occurred to me was uh, the 1967 version of Casino Royale, of course, matched with the 2006 version. That, that, that'd be uh, that, that'd be an interesting one. Yes. Aha! Yes. I recommend the uh, the uh, the uh, cinema owner does first is put on the 67 version because otherwise people probably uh, if they put the uh, then, might leave. Yes, that's right. Yes. <laughs> You might as well throw in the 54 and call it a triple bill. Oh, yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfect. I just want to say one actual double bill I did see, now that I think about it, from the early 80s was um, Moonraker and For Your Eyes Only. So talk about a severe change in tone between the two halves of the double bill. But It's one of the wonders of the marvels of the, the series is that it does sort of run the bill from that license to kill kind of like homage kind of playing into the the stereotypes of the or the, the the popularity of the time sorry you know and i guess quantum of solace is also emulating certain elements of the born franchise and that sort of stuff riding on the coattails to being sort of like deeply connected to the fleming novels and sort of having maybe a bit of a slower pace you know and then the the, out, the outrageous good time fun like i've been introducing younger people to james bond in the course of the last few years and they're woke and interested people and they're thinking critically about the world but they also really love the hilarity and stupidity of the roger moore era <laughs> and you know that kind of like outrageous ridiculousness speaks to i don't know i guess certain audience who who in other in other respects has never really seen a film that doesn't take itself that seriously that is fun and thinking of like you know Mm -hmm. you only live twice as of the world or the moonrakers of the world you know you know my my sample size of a few means that i'm i'm leaning towards just thinking that roger moore's going to have a bit of a renaissance anytime soon maybe as i think we've talked Mm -hmm. about on the podcast in the past a lighter tone going into whatever follows no time to die thank you for joining me on this little meander through our little years and as a little plug for joe uh, one of the things that you were talking about with james on your podcast recently and that spoke to me and again sort of I never put too much thought into it was sort of the emotional resonance of Casino Royale and of Honor Majesty's Secret Service so if you wanted to torch people with no bathroom breaks you can have them sit through those two as well <laughs> there you go 
<laughs> there you go. The two the two saddest moments, yes, in the longest movies. Uh, <laughs> but I think I, that I like would that also one. be a reasonably popular one, one amongst the fraternity these days. Yeah, I, I agree, <laughs> and I think it would be a nice uh, window for, again for for younger uh, younger generation who's you know not quite sure they want to venture into the early Bond films. I think if they watch these two together and saw the parallels, I think yeah, maybe they might uh, mm. get the interest. You know, when you first discovered the the franchise, you're like, oh, great. So there's 21 of these things, but where do I start? <laughs> and then when you realize how, right, how right. different and, and exactly. odd some of them are, by like comparison with, say, what you grew up on or what you knew, like grew up on the Roger Moore era or grew up on the Timothy Dalton era, you're going to have different impression of James Bond from each other as as you would from from Casino Royale. And, you know, so people people have a particular set understanding of what it is, and it's nice to, to mess with those assumptions from time to time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, very much so. It's always fascinating when you talk to a Bond fan and you talk about their first Bond film that got them excited. You know, I always say, depending on what that film is, they might have a very different view of what Bond is than I do. So, again, no two Bond fans are the same, that's for sure. Yes, yeah, somehow we still managed to talk for hours on end about the subject. So that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And if you're listening, cinema owners, stick on some more double bills. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll have a few more attendees. <laughs> all right. Let me wrap this up and say thank you for joining me. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, we'll talk to you all next week. Sounds great. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Can one motion picture possibly contain this much action? This much excitement. This many villains. Bond is dead. Bond is alive. Kill Bond! Now! Can one motion picture possibly contain this many beautiful women. What's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this? The things I do for England. Can one motion picture possibly contain this much adventure? This much danger? Can one motion picture possibly contain all this? No.